Bloody Good Film Podcast! Welcome to a podcast about the only two genres of film that matter. Action and horror! I'm your host, Jesse. With me, as always, a member of the Rebrones, Josh. This is the Bloody Good Film Podcast, and today we're talking punk rock, Josh, but with a little horror twist, a little thriller twist, a little... There's even some thrash metal and, and hardcore in this shit. And there's Sir Patrick. We're talking about Green Room, Josh. Yeah, and uh, Sir Patrick Stewart, uh, which I forgot he was knighted and all that shit. This is so fucking weird to see. I know we're we're going to go into recommendations, uh, upcoming attractions that caught our eye on this. But I just got to say, his acting in this is so weird to me. I'm I'm a big Star Trek fan. So seeing or hearing Jean-Luc Picard drop the N-word so casually and full of hate. Like, he wasn't reading Huckleberry Finn. He was right on saying the N-word with malice. It's so weird to me. It's weird because, especially him, like, he's so easily recognizable as one or two characters. Like, your mind automatically associates him with Star Trek. I guess some people can automatically associate him with X-Men. Like, I mean, if they're like 14 or something, they'll go X-Men. If, if they've lived a little and they're willing to go deeper than mutants are racism, then uh, they'll go <laughs> oh, and they'll enjoy Star Trek with higher philosophical ideas. <laughs> but it's just so weird to see this guy that you're used to being in space or in a wheelchair just so blatantly racist. He's so he's always like a good guy. He's always got I've, I've never seen him do it before. He does it so well. I, you wouldn't think he, he's almost like a Tom Hanks character and that you don't think that he could play evil. Right. Because he's done good so well. But uh, I think he, he did great. All right. But besides that, going into recommendations, anything catch your eye? uh Recently, not necessarily recommendations, but just whatever caught your eye. Yeah, you know what caught my eye? They released the trailer uh, today for the Fear the Fear Street, R.L. Stein Netflix trilogy kind of anthology thing that they have coming on. Did you get a chance to see the trailer? I saw Alex dropped it in the Do You Love Horror group, and I didn't watch it, but I saw that there was Sadie Sinks from Stranger Things was in that. There's a lot of Stranger Things. There's like two or three Stranger Things kids. There's some Stranger Things writers that are in there. It definitely has kind of that teenage Stranger Things vibe. But it actually looks like it's going to be surprisingly gory. Like, I was surprised that it was an R rating. Really? Because I don't think R with uh, R.L. Stein, other than his first initial. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't either. So when I originally had heard about this a few months ago, I thought they were going to be like these cheesy PG-13 kind of made for kids horror type of thing. 
But from the trailer and from a couple of things that I've been reading on it, it looks like it's going to be a legitimate horror anthology trilogy. And it looks like it's going to be heavy on the kind of blood and gore side of things. So it looks really surprising. It's completely different than what I thought it was going to be. Maybe they're understanding that a lot of uh, R.L. Stein's uh, fan base has grown up. Like uh, they did with the scary stories to to tell in the dark, that movie. They they kept a a lot of the themes from the stories, but they definitely like upped the horror past what would be acceptable for a kid's horror movie. Did you read the books as kids, the Fear Street books? No, I was just I I ended in in the middle of his Goosebump run. I think I got had like forty or something of those books, and then I was done with them. I was more of an Animorphs kid. <laughs> I was hoping you'd be my R.L. Stein reference here to this one because I've never read the books either. But from what people are saying about it, apparently the books themselves were kind of a little bit more graphic. They were like for the advanced kids, the advanced teenagers that could see or read about a little bit more gruesome stuff. So maybe they just kind of took that and ran with it here. I didn't think Arl Stallion was capable of it because I've gone back over since I got my Kindle and tried like rereading some of those old Goosebump books and they don't hold up. But there are like kids books that do like I mentioned Animorphs. Those hold up fantastically for kids books. Goosebumps books are pretty terrible. Arl Stein did a short run of Man Thing, which should have been a really easy horror comic book character for him to ad- adapt. And he made that into kitty nonsense too like man thing was is like before swamp thing exists man thing was there and it was a really good character to like go dip into marvel's horror and he made it like man thing was making like a a, a movie he was an actor or something and it, was, it just says he shit all over it so i I just figured arlstein doesn't know how to do anything but write kitty fiction that goes nowhere So I'm actually kind of excited about it. I had written it off and thought that it wasn't going to be something that I was going to watch on Netflix, but the trailer kind of reeled me in a little bit and they're releasing them kind of like in installments. So they all have dates. So it's Fear Street 1994. So we get to go back to our childhood. Then they have a 1666 and like a 1970 something. So I don't know. It looks like it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm all in for it now after seeing the trailer. I'll have to check it out. Okay, I know you're going to have an opinion on this next one, because I never thought this would happen, especially as Harrison Ford kept getting older and older. Apparently, shooting on Indiana Jones 5 has started. How the fuck do you think they're going to be able to do this movie? I'd imagine that they're just going to have to push Indy around on a wheelchair at this point, right? He's 80 years old. He was struggling in the fourth one. I don't see how this is going to happen. The fourth one was complete garbage. The movie's at least they didn't bring- awful. They didn't bring back Shia LaBeouf. I hope they don't do any fucking aliens. I know, like, technically when you're going into, like, religious magic and, like, uh, I think, was it Hindu magic or or whatever was happening in the second one and all that stuff, that aliens should seem acceptable, but it's a whole other area of conspiracy theory bullshit. It doesn't really fit. Keep with, like, even though I think it's nonsense, keep with just going with uh, religious crap. Dude, like... The mummy went with uh, Pharaoh uh, superstition and all that kind of stuff. And the first mummy film is probably the fourth best Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> That's true. That's a good way to look at it. It's just weird to think about it now. Like it's been so long, even since the fourth one. And in the fourth one, like, like you said, he 
was not moving well. It was not the indie of old. <laughs> it was the indie that is old, but yeah, <laughs> I, I just, I don't think that they can make it work. You're past the Nazis. You're, I don't even think they're going, well, Russians are problems all the time, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, I just, I don't see how they're going to make this work. I, I haven't seen the script. I know George Lucas and I don't think, uh, even Steven Spielberg has their hands on it. So maybe somebody that grew up with it and like has some passion in, in the franchise instead of somebody that's just trying to churn out something new might be able to make it go. But I don't know. Like I, I'm a huge Harrison Ford fan. He surprised me in Blade Runner 2049 because uh, before that, his last good performance was Air Force One. But he did a good job on uh, the Blade Runner sequel. Like I, I, I didn't think he had it in him. I thought he gave up on acting because he definitely showed that he didn't give a fuck in uh, Force Awakens. It was cool to see him back with Chewie, <laughs> yeah. and he's like, "Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, that's my ship." Oh, Cash my check. <laughs> like, yeah, there. I know he showed that when there's a project that speaks to him, and I guess uh, Blade Runner 2049 spoke to him because he did a good job in that. He will try to act. Otherwise, he's just fucking there, and he's probably just smoking pot off off of camera. <laughs> it's. Just, I hope it's not going to be one of those passing of the torch movies where he's just kind of around the movie, but we get some out of some other character's journey that we really don't care about, and we just have the Harrison Ford wisdom. They were trying to pass the torch in the last one. There was talk of doing mud spinoff movies, which that's a fucking stupid name to do a spinoff like. <laughs> Even before they cast Shia LaBeouf, who is the worst actor on earth? I don't. I understand that people think he's like creative and quirky, but he's a good I, meme. <laughs> yeah, he's a good meme. That's all that he has going for him. I understand that people like. Maybe it's because I never watched Even Stevens. I just saw him as the annoying kid that died in Constantine. He's the annoying kid in Transformers when I wanted to see the fucking Autobots, like. Just got in the way of everything. There's no charisma to him. I don't understand why he has fans. And apparently he's an ass. Harrison Ford had to tell him. I mean, it was a shit movie. I understand what Shia LaBeouf was going. But Harrison Ford had to tell him, like, <laughs> you got to talk up the movie on the promotions. You don't give your honest opinion about it. <laughs> Have you seen Fury with Brad Pitt and Shia LaBeouf? No, I haven't. I think, that was I-, I think that came out before I realized that Brad Pitt's a good actor. The movie's really good. We'll have to do that on the podcast. We haven't done a war movie yet. Maybe we'll do one of those. But one of my favorite Shia LaBeouf stories, just because I don't know if we'll ever do it, and I don't know if I'm ever going to have a chance to tell this story again. Just do it! Brad Pitt had to shut down production on Fury because Shia LaBeouf had gotten so into character that he had stopped bathing and was just sweaty and stinky. And they were filming in this like replica tiny little tank. And Brad Pitt physically couldn't take the stench anymore that he stopped production until they made Shia LaBeouf take a shower. I don't like actors like that. Like everybody praises Daniel Day-Lewis. I think it's just a reason to be an eccentric asshole to people around you. If you're a good actor, you shouldn't have to be an asshole to people in production. You shouldn't have to like uh, Daniel Day-Lewis call me Abe Lincoln when I'm on set. Like (laughs) if you're a good actor, when the director tells you to, to... act you fucking act that's all there is to it you don't have to smell like shit all the time you don't have to be a dick to other people like i i get like stay in your head case like maybe like kane hodder i just finished reading his uh autobiography 
he he kept distance from the people that he was going to kill on the set of the Jason movies so that there'd be some intimidation. But that was to enhance their performance. If you can't get in your performance, that's on you being a shit actor. There are plenty of actors that know how to do it. Stop giving Daniel Day-Lewis roles. <laughs> and Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> I did see that for the Indiana Jones movie, they signed uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I don't know if you've ever seen Fleabag. But it is so it is so funny. I tried watching that because one of my friends at uh, at work said it was great, and I got like halfway through it. And I'm like, this isn't for me. <laughs> like, may- maybe I didn't give it enough of a chance, but like, it felt like a chick flick to me. And I'm like, I I never click with these things. Like, I'm all for female empowerment and like go on those narratives. It's just not the narrative that I feel like watching. So I'm not going to say that Fleabag's a bad show. It's just. I'm not their target audience. No, probably not. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what her, you know, dry humor has to do with uh, Harrison Ford and how big of a spot she's going to get next to him. We'll see. I I haven't really even looked into Cassie much on that. I wonder if there, there's anybody that would be interesting to me besides Harrison Ford. I wonder if they're just going to give him like a CGI body and just have like all the stunts with just his head attached to it. <laughs> I haven't looked at any of the cast either. I The only reason I looked it up because I was curious if Steven Spielberg was going to get back into it. And from the looks of it, it does not look like he wants to be a part of it. I didn't see Karen Allen in there either. Like they supposed they got married at the end of the fourth one. If I remember, I haven't seen it since theaters. I just remember that at the end of the marriage scene, Shia LaBeouf goes to pick up his hat. And I'm like, if you pick up that fucking hat, I will find out where you... I don't care if it's in the script. You should have objected to that shit. And then Indiana Jones picked it up and everything was okay in the world. But if he had put on that hat, that would have been too much for me. <laughs> I love Indiana Jones, but God, the Shia LaBeouf in that movie is... One of the worst performances. I remember I was so excited. I went and saw it on opening night in the theaters and I wanted to walk out. That's how bad of a movie it was. I kept on trying to convince myself that it was a better movie. Like I was in denial the entire time I watched it. Like, okay, he survived uh, falling out of uh, an airplane with a raft instead of a parachute. I can, you can maybe survive a nuke in a fridge. I, I can deal with that. It was around the time that, uh, Shia LaBeouf starts swinging from the branches. Like, he, he sees some monkeys do it. And then two seconds later, he's like, yeah, I can go Tarzan with zero practice, just as good as those fucking monkeys that have lived in the jungle their entire life. So he starts swinging from the vines to catch up to the cars. I'm like, okay, I'm fucking out. This is too much for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's awful. Hopefully we don't have to do it on the podcast. We're going to because uh, we do full franchises. It'll be the first time I've watched it since theaters. We'll have three good movies, and we might have two. Well, we'll be hopeful. We'll hope that 80-year-old Harrison Ford can give us a good performance, and we'll only have to go through one dud in the franchise. <laughs> Let's hope. All right. The other one that caught my attention, I, I just saw this on Donny Cates' Instagram this morning, and I'm excited as hell about this. Donny Cates is, is a comic book writer, because I'm sure you didn't know who the fuck he was. Nope. He's done uh, Venom. He's going to be doing uh, Hulk right now, now that Al Ewing has stopped with his uh, Immortal Hulk, which was awesome body hair, body whore, not body hair, Hulk, that uh, definitely, if you're a David Cronenberg fan, read that. He just got his uh, comic book picked up to do uh, God's Country as a TV show. 
And that's going to be fucking epic. It was only like a six issue comic book series, but unlike what I've seen with Jeff Lemire's Sweet Tooth, which looks like they made it into some whimsical crap after how good and dark and bloody and violent the comic book is. I saw that trailer for Sweet Tooth and I'm like, fuck this. I'm not watching this. This looks like it's made for five-year-olds. That's not the comic book that I read. So if any of you you heard the earlier episode where I recommend Sweet Tooth, it does not look like we saw on Netflix. But God (laughs) Country is going to be hard to fuck up that way because this isn't a little kid-run story. It's us. It's old people or or like an old man dealing with Alzheimer's. And then he picks up the sword and it's kind of like Mjolnir for uh, Thor in that uh, as soon as he picks up the sword, he gets power. And the sword actually ends up being like a representation of how families dealing with somebody with Alzheimer's, it can like, they put all themselves into it and it still ruins their life despite their best intentions for him. And it's like, it's all just like a whole metaphor for Alzheimer's with an Alzheimer's guy who's, who instead of just showing the the harm and, and it's not intentional harm, it's just like more to it than just like dumping on Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's people. But it's just showing what people go through when they sacrifice their lives for somebody that's going through Alzheimer's and they do it in a cool way with swords of gods and like battles and, and just like epic, beautifully painted artwork. It's something that I've never seen on screen. Honestly, if they could get Clint Eastwood in that, in that role, it would be amazing. I'm looking forward to this so much. Like I got so excited when I saw Donnie Cates knows how to uh, uh, write a comic with like a story that works on multiple levels. And I don't see how they can fuck it up because they cannot do that. They cannot WB this unless they're going to have like some guy who's, who's 20 years old gets hit on the head and suddenly has memory issues. And then he picks up the sword. I think we're good from that. Yeah. You kind of went down a notch after you talked up sweet tooth so much. And then I saw the Netflix trailer for sweet tooth and it looked like, like a WB Bambi. I was like, what is going on here? This is not what Josh described. It looked, it looked like a Disney production to me. Need somebody that's actually read the comic to tell me that it's good. Because everybody, I talked to some people that didn't read the comic and they liked it. But I'm like, is it whimsical? Because it should not be whimsical. And they're like, yeah, it's a little whimsical. Then fuck that. I don't want a whimsical <laughs> adaptation of that. They cast the kid too damn young. And they, they cast like, it should be. I know it's probably hard to do a casting call for an ugly teen. But there should not be nothing adorable about it. If you look at the artwork for Sweet Tooth, he's a janky looking teenager. Like, he should not be, he's not somebody that you're going to want to like rustle his hair or, or whatever when he walks by. It should not look like that. And I don't mind that it looks like they uh, switched the race of, of the old man. That's perfectly fine. I can't think of his name. But like, he's too cleaned up too. Get him a little bit haggard. This is a post-apocalyptic world. Like everything that I saw on Sweet Tooth is a fucking mess. It seems like they had no regard for the source material. So like if you've been listening to me for comic adaptations, do read Sweet Tooth. Do read God Country. Ignore the Sweet Tooth TV show. Just like Netflix fucked up Lock and Key. They made that into like a whimsical looking TV show. Ignore that. Read the comics. You know, I never thought of that. Like I never thought how they cast ugly people. Like, because you you can't phrase it like that, right? How do you phrase a casting call for non-attractive people? Well, I think it's I think you can do it with adults because at, at that age they know what they are probably, but uh, with kids you can't go you can't just walk up to a kid and like you look like shit. You want to be in my movie? Like that's hard. I I can't imagine like the parent. Well, 
maybe some parents there's probably some parents that like you got a character actor face son you should be doing you should be slumming it up with two or three lines a movie <laughs> all right are we ready for uh the main attraction the headliner some would say well i don't think we had any other movies so by default they're the headliner <laughs> all right we're going to talk about Green Room. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Federation Starship Enterprise. After a decent gig falls through, the promoter sets the arts, the eight rights up with another gig at the venue his cousin works at. Unfortunately, the venue is owned by neo-Nazi skinheads, and the eight rights find themselves witness to a murder. Can they make it out of the venue before they're killed themselves? That's pretty good. I can tell how much you like the movie by your excitement. Yeah, I spit all over my microphone. Well, not the microphone, but the sound thing that goes over it. See, that's why we got a spit protector, just for, for <laughs> moments like this. I got juiced, and then just like I started frothing at the mouth when I was saying it. I forgot how much I liked this movie. I remember loving it when I saw it in the theaters, and then when it came out on Netflix again, I had watched it. And it's been a while since I had seen it, and I, I forget how good it is. This was, I think, only my second time watching it, and I'm wondering why it took me so long to do it. Because I, I, I've liked a few movies from this director. He's he's done, like, Blue Ruin, which was pretty good. And uh, I think it was called Monster Party was another really good... Well, not really good. That one was kind of mediocre with a cool plot. But, like, there's something to this director. He knows how to do brutality in a way that, that's brutal without seeming like he's trying too hard. It's, like, real-world brutal. Yeah, that's, I think, what sticks with me with this movie is it's a very real world setting. And at no point does it feel outlandish. Like the whole time that they're in the gig and kind of everything that's happening, it's kind of set in realism and it never really departs too far from that. And I think that's what makes it so good. And the acting caliber in this movie is high and above anything else that we've talked about in probably all our movies so far. Anton Yelchin is great. I, I I really liked him in uh, the Star Trek uh, remakes, which aren't really true Star Trek, but they're fun. And then uh, in Lugan Poots, she transforms in every single movie I've ever seen her in. She's never the same character. Like twenty eight weeks later was my first uh, introduction to her, and like she was pretty there. That's what got my attention of her then. And then I saw her years later in the Fright Night remake with Anton Yelchin, and she did a great job in that too. And then just this. Is a hard right from everything else that she's done because she, uh, she she's not like the pretty nice girl. She like she's still pretty that she can't help that, but like she's not going conventionally pretty in appearance, and she's coming off like a more of a a hard ass in this movie. She's great. Like the way she changes from role to role is really good. She's good in Vivarium too. Oh, we're doing that movie. I love that movie. She's just a great actress, and she's adapts to whatever role she got. And as far as Anton Yelchin, Anton Yelchin's a great actor as well. It's what was was yeah. It's a tragedy that we lost him. You know, as young as he was, in such a, just a a crazy freak accident of a way. That's what makes this movie a little bit harder to watch because the scenes where he's like desperate and in pain, it kind of makes you, it makes you feel extra bad because like I know he didn't he he died in a weird way that wasn't like in these circumstances but just because he died so young like it comes in my head like he's desperately trying to get away from the situation it's like oh crap 
this guy's dead and you can just see how much he wants to live in it. Like it really, it, it bums you out a little bit while you're watching it. It does. And you know, the whole tone of the movie is, you know, very desperate and, you know, a little bit depressing at times. And, you know, when you add the fact that, you know, he passed away and kind of the circumstances surrounding it, it's, it, you're right. It, it's a little unnerving. There was another one. I can't remember what it was called. Something about dogs or something. And he was in it, and uh, he gets like executed, like begging for his life. And that was I, a friend lent that to me, really close to the, around the time that he died. And like, oh, this is just this is so fucking depressing. You're not talking but, about uh, Alpha Dog, are you? Yeah, the one with Justin Timberlake. It was a surprisingly good movie. I, I liked it. I, honestly, I was even surprised with Justin Timberlake being good in it. I didn't think he could act. No, I saw it in high school, but it was a long time ago. It holds up. It, I don't, maybe you didn't like it then, but if it didn't hold up then, it holds up now. And I think it's another one of those that's loosely based off a true story, if I remember correctly. Oh, I don't even pay attention to that shit. Then when they say movie, loosely, it's like, it. I had a shit once. Somebody else took a shit before, and then they were murdered years later. So that's where my inspiration came from. Like, I, loosely based <laughs> off a true story doesn't mean anything. We talked about it at the jump of the podcast, but... Man, Sir Patrick Stewart, man, as far as like just pure acting caliber, the performance that he gives in this movie is so like understatedly perfect. Like at no point is he like over the top. He's very kind of steady, very reserved, even as everything's kind of like crashing down around him. He just kind of has like the same kind of cool, calm, collected demeanor about him that's just so like eerily perfect. Like his performance is just top notch. This is another performance where I think he got it because he was bald. Just like uh, <laughs> in X-Men, he got cast as Xavier because Xavier's bald. I'm like, we got a classy bald guy that we can cast in this role. Let's get let's get Jean-Luc Picard for it. And this one, he's a neo-Nazi skinhead that owns a, a club. And uh, they're like, you know who can't grow hair and would be perfect to play a skinhead? Sir Patrick Stewart. And he's like, yeah, I can do that. No problem. Yeah, I can do that. Make it so. Perfect Patrick Stewart. <laughs> it's surprisingly better than a lot of the other uh, int- uh, accents that we get from you. And then we got maybe from fucking Arrested Development in this. She she changes a lot, too, from role to role in what I've seen her. Although I've mo- only seen her Arrested Development, an episode of The League, and this. But between those three roles... She's pretty different in it. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess when you compare just those three. I can't think of anything else that she's been in that I've seen, actually. Maybe her career hasn't been as great as I expected. <laughs> oh, she was in the final girls. I just oh, I never saw that one. Oh, there you go. That's one more movie for her. But that's that's the only other thing that I've seen her do other than Arrested Development in this. I like the, this movie pretty much from the start. I like. I am a metalhead, but I do enjoy some punk music. And uh, they get screwed over in the original venue. Like, they're driving all this way. They're broke. They're siphoning gas just to get venue to venue. And the the venue that the guy ends up hooking them up with ends up being at, like, a Denny's with him being the only person that's, like, headbanging along to this shit. And then you can, like, see the waitress just walking by not giving a shit about the ain't rights playing as hard as they fucking can. Like I, I've been to shows where it kind of looked like that. Like when, when that happens, I like try to nod my head a little bit more. 
Even if it's an opening <laughs> band that I don't give a shit about, like I, I'm trying to give you some enthusiasm as best as I can. But uh this this just felt fucking awkward. It was hilarious. Just I've seen it in real life. It does happen like that. Not that I haven't been to a punk show, but I've seen that at metal shows. Yeah, and it's crazy just to see like everyone else that's not there to see the band perfectly just going along with their day. They're eating their food, the waitress is still doing their job. Meanwhile, the the band is just going at it, you know, at eleven, and it's so funny. Well, that was like me when I, I've done karaoke at a bar in Upland, and uh, everybody else was like these these old people doing like country songs, and I came up there, the Ace of Spades, the Ace of Spades, and like by the time I was done with it, the entire fucking crowd was gone. Well, not the entire, like three quarters of the of the crowd was gone. <laughs> That's pretty funny. All right. So now we're getting to the club. There's some things. I, I watched it twice today because uh, I watched it originally at the gym and I wasn't able to take notes while I was doing it. And there's some things that I, I missed. Like when they start unloading the band at the Nazi skinhead club, the guy that helps him, he's like, hey, uh, your your cousin said that you and your girl were going to go stay with it. And then he immediately like stops him. Like, because all these people are just like, punk whatever skinhead people that, that all look the same to me right i didn't realize who the hell that was later in the movie like it didn't click until my rewatch that he was the guy that was uh going to be the traitor to the skinheads and end up not really doing much to help them but helping them move like five feet from the door after shit had gone down <laughs> <laughs> like they set it up but it was a setup that didn't work for me because uh, all these people in the club look the same to me except for like the big guy and the little shrimpy guy that that took the phone in the first place. It's weird because it's already kind of dark and kind of grimy in the actual venue that a lot of these skinheads start looking exactly the same, and it doesn't help that they're all dressed almost exactly the same. It just the extra bad ones get red laces. But yeah, well, you're I think, right. I think red laces. He mentions red laces. I have a feeling that's a a skinhead thing. Like part of their style. So that makes sense to me that they singled out the red laces. Those are the enforcers of the skinhead patrol. Is that what you, you've looked into? It? I, I've looked into it a little bit just because uh, I do like punk. And then I'll, every once in a while, I'll go down like a punk rabbit hole. And after a while, I'll, oh, if, if you go down a punk rabbit hole on YouTube long enough, you end up finding Oi, which is. There are not necessarily all of them are horrible skinheads, but anything that goes working class eventually go they turn racist for some reason. And then you'll be listening to a song that's like, this is a pretty awesome song, and they'll start going, White power, white power, like, oh, okay, never mind. You gotta get yourself out of that shit and hope that nobody's walking by your window. Well, I don't live in an apartment anymore, so if anybody's walking by my window, it's fucking weird. But like <laughs> I just I hate how easy it is to fall into like races rabbit holes when it comes to punk. And there's so many good bands, but just like some assholes got to ruin it for everybody. Yeah. And it works for the setting that they're in. And I love that they realize it right away. Like when they tell him, hey, you know, what's the crowd like? And he's like, well, you know, they're they're a little rough. He's like, well, we get skinheads at every show. It's not that big of a deal. And then they go on to like specify what kind of skinheads they are. And I was like, man, it must be tough to be in a punk band to have to navigate that world. It probably matters what part of the the world you're at. Like, I couldn't see like a, a horrible racist neo-Nazi band 
playing around here. And also, there are bands right now that are trying to take back what Skinhead originally was. Because Skinhead wasn't originally a racist thing. It got co-opted by a bunch of races and turned into a horrible thing. But I, I'm starting to see some punk bands are like, fuck this, you're not punk if you're racist. I've even seen like some punk bands where they have have black people in the bands that uh, they're trying to really like force it down. Like, this isn't what the movement was about. We're trying to make it into uh, about something that's real social progress, not about race issues like uh, the skinhead racist assholes are trying to make it into. And I love that when they finally get there and they realize like the type of people that they're dealing with, like rather than just play the normal set, like he tells them, hey, you know, play your older stuff, stay away from anything political, play something a little bit harder. And then their first instinct was to like, no, we're going to go right at these guys. With the dead Kennedys cover, which fucking you cannot do. No, I don't know if anybody would be brave enough to do this in real life. A bunch of racist Nazi skinheads in a crowd and you start the set off with Nazi punks fuck off by the dead Kennedys. It could not be any better than that. And I love that they finish it and he goes, and that was a cover. Like they are honestly, the eight rights sounded good to me. Like they got, that's like the raw kind of aggressive punk that I really like. Like I don't hate the Ramones, but they don't really do it for me as much. I'm more of like a casualties, dead Kennedys kind of person. But, uh, and their sound was definitely, Heavy, raw, awesome punk. I, I'm def. I should just. I, I'm gonna dig into the the soundtrack and see if they have any like cool, s- full songs from them in there. Yeah, you would imagine they did at least one or two to kind of have going on in the background. I know I heard Slayer at one point. It wasn't Dead. Ke- I mean, it wasn't the Ain't Rights, but there there was like a diverse, heavy soundtrack. It was like a lot of this is like, yeah, this is my shit. That director knew how to appeal to me. I think. I was his target audience. <laughs> not, not appealing to me with the skinhead shit, but despite the fact that I have shaved my head bald before, but I was never a skinhead. I was never a racist. Well, I probably accidentally done racist things, but I was never an intentional racist. <laughs> and then the whole mood of the movie changes from them just dealing with performing at a racist venue, which I'm sure they've done before. Like, they didn't seem bothered by the fact that they were going to go perform in front of racists. I think at some well, point, you seemed- them to it. <laughs> Anton Yelchin seemed a little nervous about doing his idea for Dead Kennedys, but other than that, yeah, they were doing fine. And then they go ahead and move all their stuff out. No problem. They get paid. They make their money. They don't have to siphon gas on the side of the road to get to the next venue anymore. But then someone forgets her cell phone. Maybe forgets her fucking phone. And that's when it all goes downhill. Because now we see someone get murdered. It was like, not, Anton Yelchin, Yelchin should have just, like, grabbed the phone and been right the fuck out. He saw the murder. He paused too fucking long. And then he starts, like, trying to dial the 911 on, on Maybe's phone. And, like, he's already fucked at that point. Yeah, that seems like the wrong way to handle that situation. Obviously, it's it's different being in that situation. It's easy to backseat drive on that. <laughs> but like, I can't imagine my first thought being, you know what? I'm going to stay in the room with the murders for a second. I'm going to call 911. Probably no issues at all. No, I'm pretending I didn't see anything, and I'm hustling out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah, but he paused. It didn't, didn't work, and then he got caught. 
the cops were already called and I kind of, there was some ingenuity in how they deal with the cops because they get them trapped into that room with the big fucking guy blocking the door. Despite the fact that the drummer seems to be like some badass jujitsu guy. Like it's, I, I find it interesting. They didn't make the singer all that uh badass in this movie. No, he's kind of a wimp. He's not a wimp. <laughs> like, I'm not saying anything bad about him, but like, Anton Yelchin, what was he? Was he the bass player? Yeah. He's taking charge diplomatically for the situation. And then the drummer is taking charge of dealing badassery with his jujitsu shit. And everybody else, like, maybe holds onto the gun. And uh, the singer, he's, he's in the room. <laughs> he, he's really interested about finding out what's underneath the floor. I mean, I never would have thought to ply up the floor to. Well, I guess if I was desperate, I might. And again, it did work in Ninja Turtles. They they axed through April's floor and got into a shop. So I guess I guess maybe you can find like some safety through the floors. But uh, it's not something that would have come to mind that easily for me. And you get to find out exactly there. There's more to it than just fucking murder and racism. There's a whole heroin den underneath the the floors of that venue. The writing in this movie is so good. Like. Every turn that the movie takes just fits perfectly with the direction of the movie. Like the pacing in this movie is almost perfect. That's what almost makes this movie harder to talk about because everything's good in it. It's so much easier to dunk on a shitty movie. But this movie, I really cannot find any complaints in it. I guess maybe since I'm a gore hound, I would have liked a little bit more gore, but I really can't say that against the director. And what we do get is pretty decent, it's just not gratuitous. Like when uh, they finally convince Anton Yelchin to uh, open up the door and they just start slashing against his arm to try to get the gun out of his hand, which he was dumb for opening up the door to begin with. Yeah, that's but uh, when they when they finally uh, start slashing at him, his arm is fucking mutilated. Like yeah, like his wrist is literally just like hanging on by like a piece of cartilage, and it's just kind of like flopping at the end of his arm. And I, but they don't show it very long. It, they're very quick cuts. Anytime there's any gore at all, it's a very like on the screen, off the screen type of thing. They don't really let the camera linger on anything. I feel like they didn't show it very long, so that you might you might have some plausible deniability in in your head on how he's able to stay conscious and in useful in the rest of this movie. I mean, they do cover it up. His arm and duct tape, which is going to be a <laughs> bitch to take off when he's actually getting some real medical help. <laughs> yeah, they're going to have to rip that off. All those wounds are going to come flying open again. But his arm was flayed. There's no way that he's like staying conscious with the kind of pain that he had. No, not like, with all like the arteries and everything right there. All the vessels, like that's just danger zone. He's as dead in this movie as he is in real life. Oh, but, too soon. Uh, <laughs> That was poor taste, I'll admit. <laughs> Too soon. You know what, you know what I, I brought up that they dealt with the cops in a clever way? We never even went into how they dealt with the cops. We just kind of skipped over that. Yeah, way to change the subject from your awful Anton Yelchin death joke. Rest in peace. And, okay, the way they dealt with it, the, because the, they confirm a stabbing, that's what Anton Yelchin had said on the phone for the two seconds that he got with the cops before they took the phone away. The little weird pudgy looking Nazi guy calls the cops and tells them that has him come over again. Or the cops call him back. And then he says, we need some true believers to deal with the cops. And they get these two, I'm guessing they're brothers. Everybody looks the same when they're skinheads and they're racist. <laughs> and they kind of look 
like they're from Alabama. Sorry, Alabama listeners. If we have any, we, we just lost the one. We lost they, the one we they, had. And uh, they just have one of them stab one of them. And then that's that's the stabbing victim. He, he does a, a little bit of a stab in the gut. So technically he's stabbed, but he's perfectly alive. And they give him a blade that's perfectly legal for him to have on him. So the cops take him away for what's probably just going to be like a fine or something like that. And then they don't have to deal. The cops aren't aware of the murder and the band that's locked away in a green room that uh, needs their fucking help. And what's so genius about that is like, that's the first time that we really see how manipulative Sir Patrick Stewart is because he has these guys on his every word. Like he's explaining the situation. He's telling them how to stab each other. And then he's basically saying, okay, you know, you're going to get arrested right now. This knife's perfectly legal. It's not going to be a felony. They'll keep you a couple days. Come to me. We'll get you paid. And then he was takes... Patrick, Patrick Stewart was there? Yeah. I, I, thought, I, I thought that was before Patrick Stewart came into the scene. No, that was... uh, Yeah, no, that was Patrick Stewart. Now you got me second-guessing myself. I think you should. I'll go on the replay later, but I don't think... I think it was the schlubby guy that uh, had them take care of the stabbings. I think you're inserting Patrick Stewart into some extra scenes here. <laughs> I'm trying to get as much Patrick Stewart as possible. Now I'm like in a deep uh, thought of whether or not I'm right. No, you're wrong. <laughs> that, that was me politely saying that you're wrong. You might want to like say, Josh, you're always right about like this, about Christopher Lambert, about uh, the goals that you should be taking with your life. Like, I'm your mentor. Listen to what I'm saying. Follow my lead on this shit. I'm always right about everything. Uh, yeah, we're not going to do that. Regardless. No, you're lost. <laughs> regardless if it was Patrick Stewart or the schlubby guy who apparently we're not going to name. Yeah, I think his name was Schlubs. <laughs> it's very evident that everyone involved in, I don't want to call it a gang, but in this neo-Nazi camp is very committed to the cause and willing to do whatever it takes to kind of keep it the way it is. I mean, it's drugs and money. I like, they got paid. Like I get stabbed for like five bucks. Yeah, but he took the money away. Like, we don't know if that guy ever got paid. They're trusted. They're you. You can't trust a neo-Nazi drug dealer. Is that what you're telling me? This is why you need my mentorship because you're losing out on a lot of good money. (laughs) Why would you ever give up a gun? Like, you're trapped in a room where you know everyone's going to kill you. Like, that's the end result, is they're going to come in and kill you. And at the moment, you have a gun and a box cutter. Why, under any circumstance, would you let someone convince you to give up a gun? Well, you know that was for pure, like, desperation. Because Patrick Stewart's outside the door saying, We only wanted the cops to go away because it was an unregistered firearm. If we, if you give us the firearm, we'll let you go. We don't want to hurt you. And then uh, they, they don't believe it, but they're like, they don't see any way out of it. There's, it's like either that or they just stay in the room with the dead girl that's been stabbed in the head and probably died. They're like, they're they're looking for like their only way out. It's it's not like a horror movie where uh, you're like, why the fuck are you going upstairs? Where you should go out the door. It's like. They're manipulating up into a situation where they don't see their options, and that was the best looking thing that they could think of. 
Like it, it was pure desperation. It didn't seem like stupidly ob- obnoxiously stupid desperation or obnoxiously stupid move. It was a naive move, but it wasn't like outside the realm of something somebody would do because they did take the bullets out of it. They did have the drummer with uh, the guy's arm in a lock where he could break it real fucking easy. Like they did their best to cover themselves, but they they were still fucked. Yeah, and you know, even that point, that's probably the biggest moment of question I have for what they did. But for the most part, like nothing seems out of character for the situation. Like it's a very desperate situation. They act very desperately at times, and they kind of weigh out all their options before realizing that they have no other choice to but to just bust out the front door. Yeah, and. After after he gets stabbed a bunch of times, wrapped up in some some tape, they do tr- decide that like either they stay there and definitely get killed while the neo Nazis get more reinforcements that are definitely going to kill them, or they they try to make a break for it, and the break for it does not go well for most of them. They end up right back in the room, like not even five minutes after getting outside. Some of them. <laughs> Yeah, not all of them. One of them, like, all the doors are, like, kind of blocked off. One of them finds, it looks like a loose window or something that he, he gets through. He gets, like, one second outside that thing, and he's immediately macheted the hell up. And it's funny because he was the one that was really pushing them to go. Like, all right, we we need to get out. We need to go now. And, yeah, that was the drummer, right? Yeah. And he just abandons everyone for the first window he sees and runs into just a slew of machetes. Yeah. The drummer gets fucked up. It was, it was kind of hard for me to see what was going on. I watched this on, uh, on uh, elliptical and some stairs at the gym. So I, I like, I'm trying, I'm sweating all over the screen while I'm doing this. So and it's already dark. So it's hard for me to see this shit. And then, uh, but it was the singer that got mauled by the fucking dogs. Right. Yep. I'd rather get macheted than killed by a dog. Like that'd be the ultimate betrayal. Cause I love dogs and just having them kill me would suck so much unless they were happy while they were doing it. If they got some satisfaction, they're like adorable while they're chewing up my face. I guess that that could be an okay way to go. These dogs are terrifying. Like as far they're as like adorable, as far as dogs and movies go, they're still good boys. Like, these are some of the scariest dogs just because of how precise they are. One, they speak German, which is already scary. Well, what would you expect a <laughs> neo-Nazi dog to speak? And as soon as he tells the dog to bite, I forget what the Nazi word for Foss. bite is. I think he was saying Foss. Foss. As soon as he tells him, the dog is just on a mission for your neck. And like we see a two, yeah, we see two people get mauled. And both times it's just directly at the neck and you just like see like the shivering jaw as like they're slowly dying. Like, ugh, it, it's intense. Yeah, there's like no mercy for any of these band, band members. Like Patrick Stewart asked if uh, the guy that got, ma- the drummer that got macheted up if he was dead yet. And he just, uh, the guy, uh, schlubby guy tells him, no, he's still breathing. And he, he just lets him fucking bleed out. That way it's, it, the later their deaths are, the easier it would be to fake that uh, it didn't happen there. Yeah, it's crazy. One thing about this movie that I felt bad myself for feeling this way. You identified with the neo-Nazis? <laughs> you are canceled, Jesse. <laughs> There's a scene. We're um, looking for a new co-host of the Bloody Good Film Podcast. 
Jesse will still produce, though. <laughs> yeah, I'll still do all the work. I just won't get the FaceTime. It's a podcast. You're not on. You don't have any FaceTime. <laughs> There's a scene at the end of the movie. I'm going to jump all the way to the end where the dog handler finally gets his and finally dies. Like, it's the one that's been commanding the dog to kill all these people. And this dude loves his dog. You can tell throughout the movie, like, his main concern is the dog. They put the microphones against the monitors and just makes the shrieking sounds and the dog run away. And, like, he refuses to send his dog back out there. He's not con- he's not going to put his dog in any inconvenience or pain or anything like that. So this Nazi really loves his dog. And he finally dies at the end of the movie. And like the last scene of the movie is his dog just kind of wandering lonely down the street. And the dog just kind of like curls up and rests his head on the guy's dead body. I like I let out like an audible. Oh, I was sad for the dog. Not so much the Nazi, but just the moment. Oh, Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> it's just such like a sad scene. Like as far as dog scenes in movies, like. I think I am legend when Will Smith is like holding his dog while the dog turns and dies and like has to kill his dog. Like I think of that like all the time as like my go-to dog death scene, but like this one, the human's dead and you just see like the sadness in the dog. I can't believe you brought I am legend. That movie's such garbage, but But that scene is so sad. Like that his only friend in the whole world is this dog and he like slowly has to like hold it and like kill it. It's, that seems good. Know. I don't, I don't care what you say I, about that movie, I, but like that is like a well, well done scene. Good on you, Will Smith. I felt more sorry for me having watched it and still having more movie time left. So <laughs> I did cry, but it was all those tears were for me. But I like in that scene, like the only reason why that dog even got to the owner was Anton Yelchin was out of bullets because he, both him and Imugen Poots, the only two survivors are cold cocking on this dog as it's walking past them. They, they have had enough of these fucking dogs. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they were not going to let that dog have any chance of it. But I guess the dog was just like, dude, you know what? If you guys want to kill me, whatever, I, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not being a Nazi enforcer anymore. I mean, I don't think the dog quit on its own. Just the owner was having a little bit of a hard time seeing Foss at the moment. <laughs> The dog was so close to getting little dog boots with red laces. I think my dogs are trying to get on, <laughs> uh, their opinion in on this situation. <laughs> they, they want it to be known that they don't believe in dog racism. That not all German Shepherds are Nazis. <laughs> exactly. I've, I have two German Shepherds back there and they don't say the Holocaust was a hoax. And they do not align with the Nazi party. <laughs> You might want to go check on your roommate. You're over here yelling Foss over and over. Oh, they'll take her out. She's not Jewish, though, so it's okay. There's (laughs) there's nothing anti-Semitic about it. This movie, like, the closer it gets to the end, like, more and more people are dying. And, like, we get to the point where it's just, like, three people. And then we lose Arrested Development to another dog kill. And then... Anton Yelchin goes on to tell another dumb story. He's been trying to tell this like paintball story about his greatest paintball triumph of all time. He's been trying to tell it the whole movie and nobody wants to hear it. So he finally gets to tell it to Imogen Poots. And that's when they decide he's going to shave his head and carry them to victory here. Yeah, this was interesting to me because they're in a life or death situation and they take the time to shave his head and don some war paint. Like, I, it, neither of those actions helped them at all from what I could tell. 
they didn't like suddenly camouflage with the wall. It would have been interesting if they just had like a muddy wall there and he goes all Rambo or or uh, Predator against it. But his war paint does fucking nothing to hide him. It doesn't do anything. Well, Mugen Poots hides under some coats while Anton Yelchin says Odin himself and jumps down <laughs> through the fucking hole. Falls down the hole. <laughs> and as clumsy as he could fucking get. And you, I, I, I was thinking this entire time. He's trying to distract the, the Nazis and Mugen Poots is hiding so that she can get the drop on the Nazis. But uh, she has two fucking working arms. I know that it's like chivalrous for the guy to be risking his wa- his life over the woman. But at that point, you got to be tactical. And a woman that can cock a gun should probably be the one that's working uh, with the fucking machete like he ended up having to work with while, she, while uh, he stays in relative safety up top. Well, in the worst case scenario was that he was going to get the shotgun that clearly needs two hands to cock, and he gets it and can't do anything with it because no, the guy's arm doesn't work. Throws the gun at him, like he the the Nazis out of out of bullets. He throws the gun at him, and apparently that's enough to make him miss his shot. <laughs> like so, the gun like, glazes off of him, and he falls down like he'd been hit with our, like a a boulder or something like that. Guns are heavy. It's not like it was. It's not like he got hit with a squirt gun or something. That would still hurt. I can definitely understand his wincing. It's just like if he had two hands, he probably still would have hit him. <laughs> All right. So I think we've gotten everybody dead now, right? We had the uh, oh, the whole reason why the, for the murder was uh, the cousins. The promoter, his cousin was going to run away with a girl and, and like betray the party. So she got stabbed. He was later turned out, turned, uh, they figured out he was a traitor. They shot him in the head while he was trying to help him out. He didn't help him out any. I think now we've gotten all the dead bodies. We got the reason for the dead body. Everybody's dead. Oh, no, and, you missed one. We missed one dead body. What body did we miss? We missed the body that was in the room with him. Oh, the big guy. We didn't mention him. The big guy who had been in an arm lock for the first 25 minutes of the movie. He finally gets his arm snapped in all the commotion where Anton Yelchin gets slashed up. And then he decides he's going to make a break for it. And our drummer puts him in a headlock and chokes him out. And they're trying to figure out if he's really down. And Imogen Poots is just like, you know what, I'm sick of this. And literally just guts him right up the middle with this box cutter. Yeah, I can't believe I almost skipped over that. <laughs> because, well, they thought he was down, he came back up, and Mugen Poots did what needed to be done. I remember the first time I saw that, like, it caught me by such surprise, because I knew she had the box cutter, but it didn't occur to me that she was just going to take it upon herself to go ahead and just put a stop to that. I still have a hard time seeing a box cutter as, like, a real, le- real legit weapon, just because I've worked in warehouses and... My box cutters could barely cut through the fucking boxes. Like these so people must that- sharpen their box cutters, dude. Because when we were at Sports Authority and I was trying to break down a truck, like my box cutter would not open boxes. Like half the time, I was still punching at the box to try to get the tape off. And then this one was already in a woman's skull when they first were introduced to the box cutter. And then, like may- maybe it was brand new at that point, and maybe it could have penetrated a skull. But at this point, when it's ripping up his stomach, it had been busted up in that fucking skull, and she's still able to to slice up his guts and let all his organs fall out. It literally glided like butter. 
Yeah, these are some intense fucking box cutters. It was like a lightsaber through his stomach. <laughs> you could have put Luke Skywalker inside that guy. <laughs> but yeah, so now now we're caught up on the body count as far as, you know, the people that we know. They finally escaped from the room. Uh, the neo-Nazis assumed they're dead. Patrick Stewart's doing his thing to their van to try to... Well, he's not doing the thing to the van. He's having other people do the thing to his van to make it look like they got killed breaking into private property. And the schlubby guy actually comes in, like, decides he doesn't want to be with the neo-Nazis anymore. So they're walking through the woods of the schlubby guy. And Anton Yelchin and, and Miss Poots decides that uh, they want to deal with the Nazis instead of going to the police. They want to do it themselves. So they kill the people uh, working on the vans. Well, and Poots does more than... Anton Yelchin because uh, she's more badass than him and she plays it so well like she's she, I could see I'm glad that she's playing Furios no no it's not her playing she should be playing Furios it's Anna Taylor Joy yeah she would have she would have been great I had a moment I had a, I had a stroke for a minute and re- replaced her in that movie but she should be playing more badass roles I believe she she can uh, make it believable because she definitely played a badass in this movie but uh She's shooting shooting the neo-Nazis, and then you get to Patrick Stewart, who's, like, all calm, cool, and collective, and, like, he tries to fucking walk away from it all. Yeah, the, the ballsy move from Sir Patrick Stewart. Like, his buddy, like, the one of the kids that's, you know, there to protect him, takes a shotgun shell to the chest, and Sir Patrick Stewart's like, you know what, I'm just gonna go ahead and walk away and pull out my gun just in case, but... At no point tries to like turn. He doesn't like fall. Well, he doesn't try. I think he was just getting his gun ready. He's an old man. He doesn't. Ha- he doesn't have like the dexterity to get it out real fast. It looked like he was going for a duel. Like he was waiting to hit ten paces and just never quite made it there. Maybe he thought there'd be some more honor. He thought it was a gentleman's him. agreement between him and Anton Yelchin. And then you see, I never thought I'd see Patrick Stewart with little bits of his skull coming up. Yeah, another kill too that. Uh, there's just so for there be not being a lot of gore and like the body count in this isn't you know particularly high like every kill is really well done and every kill is pretty memorable one that i completely forgot about when i was watching it the second time was there's a guy that just takes a shotgun to the side of the face and just blows the side of his face in completely out of the blue like you're not expecting anyone to pop up you're not expecting anyone to lose his face and he completely loses half of his face that was the cousin of the promoter that uh, got them the gig. He was the traitor on there. Yeah, it was a pr- it was a pretty surprising kill because it looked like he was going to help them get out of there, and then his head's just blown off, and they're all fucked again. <laughs> yeah, their one moment of hope is kind of gone, and that's one thing that I love about this movie. It's I don't want to say it's depressing, but it's very- depressing. <laughs> very depressing movies. Watch Blue Ruin. It's a depressing movie. Yeah. It's just one of those where, like, any time that they think that there's a small sliver of hope, the door immediately the door immediately gets slammed on them. So, like, any time they think something's going to go right or, you know, they're going to find something out, like, that window gets shut and they have to try something else. Like, there's very little hope for them throughout the whole movie. And, you know, Anton Yelchin especially does a really good job of just kind of going through the different levels of... The anxiety, the stress, the realization that he's probably not going to make it out. And then, you know, that kind of final last stand that they have. No, for sure. All right. 
I think we've gotten most of everything, but there's one thing I want to get into before we go into our whether or not this is a bloody good film. In the beginning, the promoter guy was asking them what their Desert Island band was. There were some like objections or questions that I don't think he answered on there. Like, if you pick Black Sabbath, do you get uh, Dio and Ozzy in it? Because lineups do kind of matter. So if you list off your Desert Island band, which I'm going to ask you for a Desert Island band, if there's like a distinct lineup that stands out for you, say, say the lineup that stands out. I, I was really annoyed by the fact that he just glossed. He said no caveats. And I'm like, that doesn't help with anything because Black Sabbath could be Dio. It could be Ozzy. It could be Tony Martin. It could be Ian Gillian. I needed to know that answer. And he just completely glossed over it. So name your Desert Island band. And if it's distinct lineup, say the distinct lineup. Well, for questions like this, I've always just assumed that it's not necessarily a band because you're not watching the band live. I've always looked at it kind of like a discography. Like you get everything that they have in their line of work. This is kind of a weird question for me. I have two bands that I'm going to go with. No, 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 no. Give me me two. No, this is Desert Island band, not bands. You need to choose here. It's 2021. Why can't I only have one band? There's not enough room on the island for you and two bands. That's why it's that's why it's not just discography. They can play the discography, but if like if it was Dio, he probably wouldn't play uh, Ozzy era Black Sabbath. So you got to deal with that. But you get one band on your desert island. You cannot have multiple bands. Don't fucking cheat on this. You was, can put your reasoning. You can put the you can put both bands up, but you need to choose between the two. See, but in the movie, if we're going off the movie here, in the movie when they get this question initially, they all give their their cool punk kind of answers, you know, the misfits, dead Kennedys. And then once they're kind of faced with death, like before they make that charge, they go, you know what, I was lying. My band's actually Prince and Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. Like they completely just change their tones, like completely. I, I thought that was a nice touch uh, later on. They're a on. bunch of posers. <laughs> My band for me, probably a weird one. It's against me. So the early two thousands kind of punk slash rock band, led by Laura Jane Grace, who is absolutely amazing. One of my favorite bands. Like their first like two or three albums, like reinventing axel rose is absolutely one of my favorite albums of all time same thing with eternal cowboy like i could listen to them nonstop. their sound has changed so much from you know the late 90s all the way through you know the late 2010s that there's so much there that i could listen to they have an acoustic album mixed in there that's perfect there's enough variety through there. No, there's enough variety through there between like their early heavy, heavy punk to, you know, kind of that classic rock vibe that they got halfway through the 2000s. There's just so much there. I absolutely love them. One of my favorite bands of all time. And if I have to listen to one band over and over, I want a band that kind of changes their sound as they get older. And, you know, Laura Jane Grace is amazing and what she was able to do with that band is just incredible so against me would be my desert island band this is a hard one for me because like i wanted to say like king diamond or merciful fate because those are my favorite bands but their discography is like merciful fate's like the best in their early years and they get a little bit weaker as they get older and then his solo band king diamond is more consistent but never reaches quite the amazingness of the early merciful fate so 
I'm trying to go like I'm trying to be strategic about this. Like I can't pick either of those, even though those are my favorite bands. I need as much music as possible that stays consistent quality. I'm gonna go from somebody from our Sunset Society uh, episode. I'm gonna go for uh, Motorhead. I, I have to. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> LA guns don't mean shit to me. I'm going Motorhead. There's like 21, 22, something like that albums on that, and I'd say there's maybe only like two Motorhead albums that don't really work for me, and the rest of it's fairly solid. So if I'm stuck with one band on a desert island, it's a hundred percent has to be Motorhead. Plus. I'm going. I'm going by the rules that it's the actual band and not just uh, uh, their discography. Because where the fuck am I going to plug in? Well, where the fuck are they going to plug in their amps? We got stranded. <laughs> so you need an acoustic set. You get an acoustic Lemmy. Fuck you. They'll they'll figure it out. He's he's a metal god. He he would plug it into his asshole and make the whole thing go. So, well, he's not the metal god, but he is God. There we go. So <laughs> so it works. Yeah, Motorhead was my choice. All right. We've gotten that. Now, is this a bloody good film? Smooth transition. This That's is, what I'm here for. <laughs> this is 100% a bloody good film, man. This is one of my favorite films we've done so far on the podcast. Every time I watch this movie, I notice how much more I like it. I remember loving it in theaters. I remember loving it even more when I saw it. And then rewatching it you know, again, it's just there's so many little things that work in this movie. The writing is perfect. The acting is perfect. The job that the band does at portraying just being desperate. Imogen Poots' character from the start to the finish. Like her little character arc is great from being, you know, quiet and kind of reserved, just watching her friend die to completely taking over and essentially carrying Anton Yelchin to the promised land here. Anton Yelchin does great. The kills are good. The blood and gore is not enough. I mean, if they would have lingered on some of them shots, if they would have lingered on some of those shots, I probably would be a little bit more happy. But there's enough of it there. There's enough kills. The way that people die is very realistic. The movie has a very, very realistic tone. The venue feels real. The characters feel real. The band feels like a real struggling band. Like everything is set in a certain amount of realism. And that kind of follows from start to finish in the movie. And that's tough to do now, especially in these kind of like thriller action, one location movies. Like it's so tough to keep pacing in a setting where it's all in one area. And this movie does it perfectly. One of my favorite movies we've done so far on the podcast. It is a bloody great film. I think, you know, when we started this podcast, I thought we'd be disagreeing a little bit more than we do because I fucking love this movie. This is, this is definitely a bloody great movie. There's suspense. There's quality acting for a change. There's violence, but it, there's not enough, but there's, it's not enough of, it's not like they shied away from it enough to really bother me too much. It's just the go around of me wants more. But I'm not bothered by the fact that there isn't quite enough like I was with the Sleepaway Camp movies. So, and just as a villain, Patrick Stewart wowed me. I didn't, I never would have thought that he can do it. It makes me want to want to see what another likable character actor would be able to do. Like, I want to see Tom Hanks play a villain after this. I just want to see all these nice people just be horrible fucking assholes for a change. <laughs> so, like. All the acting's quality, the suspense is there, the gore is enough, and uh, honestly, I've, I can't think of another movie that 
quite shares this this plot. Like it doesn't feel like a ripoff or a derivative of anything else. It might just be like the punk aesthetic it is hiding what the obvious analog is, but it seems pretty original to me. So definitely a bloody great film. And while we're talking about these movies, Josh, before we go, this is one of the best kind of one location movies. I'm assuming Evil Dead's your favorite kind of one location movie. What's another one that you love that's just kind of all takes place in one little area? If we're going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to forego Evil Dead because yeah, that was the one. I'm going to go buried with uh, Ryan Reynolds and that's the smallest fucking area that you could find. That's a really good suspenseful movie where you only see Ryan Reynolds getting lit up with like a cell phone while he's buried alive. And it's somehow the most infuriating, suspenseful movie I've ever seen. Like we're, we're definitely going to cover that one because it's got like some Hitchcockian notes in it that would be fun to talk about on the podcast. What about yeah, you? I didn't think I'd like Buried as much as I did. I like Ryan Reynolds for the most part. But he's normally just like goofy enough where I can, you know, tolerate him. But like in that one, I was really surprised with his performance and, you know, the whole scene of just being stuck in one little box, essentially buried in the desert worked really well. I was surprised. Good for him. Is buried your answer too? No, buried's not my answer, but that was a good one. This one's tough. The horror fan in me and the Hitchcockian fan in me wants to say rear window. I love that movie more up to date because you always make fun of me because i like new horror and that seems to be my preference the invitation start to finish that was a really good movie that movie is great and just like having everyone at one dinner table in one house and kind of airing all the dirty laundry just works perfectly I, that movie is great yeah i think uh both all, all those movies mentioned because he took two for some reason when asked about one uh <laughs> All those movies definitely need to get covered on the podcast eventually. Yeah. You know, I feel like we haven't, we don't mention Hitchcock enough. You know, I know we both love Hitchcock, but he hardly ever squirts his way into Hitchcock. This this podcast got started with like the idea when we were arguing about whether there were good psycho sequels. So yeah, it's definitely something that we're going to have to delve in eventually. Like even beyond the horror, because we got to do like North by Northwest is a great movie. That movie's great. All right. What are we going to be watching next week? Josh, next week we're going back to my favorite subgenre of horror. We're going back to found footage. And what we're covering is Grave Encounters and the sequel, Grave Encounters 2, which doesn't have a cool tagline, which is a little disappointing. A movie about just a camera crew that's going to film their fake ghost adventure show and just end up in a mental hospital of horror. All right. Sounds terrifying. <laughs> uh, yeah, Josh, bring that energy next week as we watch Crave Encounters and Crave Encounters 2. Time to roll the credits. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Bloody Good Film Podcast to stay up to date with everything podcast related and to let us know what you think about some of these films that we watch each and every week. As always, big thank you to Soul Grinder for our intro and outro. If you haven't yet, make sure you guys go give their pages a follow at Soul Grinder Official and at Merrowgate. For myself and Josh, this has been the Bloody Good Film Podcast. And remember, we be booty, booty. It's all alone.